Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. The China in the World podcast is brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by me, Paul Hanley. Welcome back to Carnegie China's China in the World podcast. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Charmaine Willoughby to discuss China-Philippine relations, uh, as well as the recent meeting between Xi Jinping and uh, President Marcos Jr. in Beijing. Before I dive into the interview, let me first uh, introduce uh, Dr. Willoughby. Uh, Charmaine Willoughby is an associate professor in the Department of International Studies at De La Salle University in Manila, Philippines. Her research uh, focus and interests include the Philippines' foreign policy, security cooperation, ASEAN's external relations, and major powers in Southeast Asia. Dr. Willoughby joined De La Salle University in 2008, and her works include The Tragedy of Small Power Politics, the Philippines in the South China Sea, co-authored with Robert Joseph Medillo and also contesting the hub and spokes model in Southeast Asia, both published in 2020, uh, ASEAN Regionalism and Aspiration or a Myth, published in 2021, and also the Philippine Security Outlook under the new Marcos administration, published in 2022. Charmaine, I hope it's okay if I call you Charmaine. Thank you very much for joining the China and the World podcast today. Thank you, Paul. And absolutely, please call me Charmaine. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you for a variety of reasons. Just one, I, I have uh, been aware of your work for quite some time, and um, I hear your name often uh, from other scholars as someone who's doing terrific work uh, in these areas. Uh, we also have, uh, as you and I talked about earlier, uh, a recent visit by the Philippines president to China, which we can talk about today. But, you know, let if I could, let me start out really just with a kind of a broad framing question, looking at the China-Philippines relationship um, and the overall kind of approach that the Philippines has ta taken toward China over the last few administrations, including, of course, uh, the previous president, Rodrigo Duterte, who was known for a friendlier ad, having a friendlier attitude toward toward China, at least early on in his administration. But you know, even others before that, you know, Aquino, President Arroyo. You know, what in your view has kind of been? How would you describe the the general approach that the Philippines has taken toward China over the last you know ten or twenty years? And and how? What kind of shifts? or changes have you seen under this new administration under President Marcos, uh, who, you know, has, I guess, won the election uh, last May. So we're we're coming up uh, this year on, on one year in office. I think um, a good place to start would be 2012. So in the last 10 years, we have really seen a full swing of um, Philippine-China relations, uh, beginning with the administration of President Benigno Aquino, who in 2012 um, filed an arbitration case against China um, in regard to China's assertive moves in the South China Sea. So 2012, mm -hmm. I think, is a very good place to start to kind of just trace the trajectory 
Secretary of Philippine Foreign Policy regarding China. Um, this arbitration case um, was in full swing. And then by 2016, the award was in favor of the Philippines. Interestingly, when the award was given, it was just two weeks after President Rodrigo Duterte was sworn as president. Um, and part of his um, presidency was you know, the pursuit of what he calls an independent foreign policy, which you know, in international relations is generally understood as a country's efforts to diversify its international relations. But for mm -hmm. President Duterte, his take on pursuing an independent foreign policy was to be independent from the United States and pivoting to China. And this is a very interesting kind of, you know, um, convergence point because on one hand, the Philippines at that time already had um, the arbitration award and it was yeah. in our favor. But President Duterte decided not to leverage the arbitration award and instead pivoted towards China. Um, so this, this translated to friendlier relations mm -hmm. with China, um, but this also translated to the alliance with the United States suffering. And it was at at the risk of, of, of abrogation. But fortunately, towards the end of President Duterte's term, the alliance was uh, restored. Um, now that we have a new president, since um, the middle of last year, President Marcus's foreign policy is, quote unquote, to be a friend to all and an enemy to none. And so far, you know, with all the uh, state visits and um, international engagements of current President Marcos, we seem to be projecting this, you know, friendly stance towards others. But whether mm -hmm. or not this foreign policy will uh, will garner benefits to protect and uphold the Philippines' national interests, we're still in kind of that, you know, wait and see stage. Very interesting. The, you know, sort of the pendulum swings that you've described, you know, starting in the Aquino administration with, of course, the application uh, around the arbitration and then and then the award in 2016, which was a, you know, tougher approach standing up uh, in a sense to what was seen, I, I suspect, as Chinese, more of a Chinese aggressive approach in, uh, in the South China Sea. Um, when President Duterte shifted that back to what you called the independent foreign policy, meaning shifting away from the U.S. and, and more uh, toward China. In your sense, was that more of a personal kind of preference for President uh, Duterte, or was he responding to, uh, you know, views of, of the constituents uh, in that some thought the arbitration may have been too tough and wanted kind of a readjustment. What's your sense of why President Duterte shifted toward this, what he called independent foreign policy? The shift towards China or the pivot towards China, I think, is very much personality driven. Um, mm -hmm. President Duterte has always had, you know, anti-U.S. sentiments even before he became president. Uh, prior to becoming president, 
he was mayor of Davao City, which is down south, south of Manila. And ever since, he's he's always been very anti-U.S. So when he became president, you know, to some extent, it was understandable why he favored China even more. But, you know, to his credit, um, he did, when he was president, he did lower the tensions between China and the Philippines. Um, and this tension was a result of of, of us, the Philippines, filing an arbitration case of increasing assertiveness of China in the uh, West Philippine Sea. So in, in, in this context, President Duterte's friendly overtures to China mm-hmm. were very mm-hmm. much um, welcome in a sense because it did lower the tensions. Mm, that's very interesting. And, and now with uh, President Marcos Jr. What, what's your sense? I mean, you described his approach as, you know, friend to all, enemy to the none, a much friendlier stance, um, seeming, you know, to make uh, certainly an adjustment from what the early days of the Duterte administration took, the position that they took. But as you say, that that did shift over time under President Duterte. But how does President Marcos' personal kind of preferences, in your view, impact the foreign policy uh, toward China, toward the United States? I mean, what? how would you describe his views toward the U.S., and how does that influence how he's approaching the relationship with China? Well, it's no surprise, um, and it's no secret that uh, President Marcos ran for office in the hopes of restoring the name and image of the family in uh, domestic politics. Um, So this means that everything that he's doing is really to... um, correct the perceptions about the country and the world towards the Marcos family. Um, in the past, his father used to be president and was also known as a as, as a dictator. We were under martial law during Marcos Sr., Marcos the father's time. Um, and then they were um, they were overthrown through the 1986 people power revolution. So since then, you know, the Marcos family family was really trying to get back into the good graces, so to speak, of of Filipinos. So in this sense, you know, this 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 motivation is what propels President Marcos to now um, announce that his foreign policy is to be a friend to all and enemy to none. He really wants to um, to prove that his family meant well um, for for Filipinos and for the rest of, of the world. So far, he seems to be doing well with all of of, of his international um, engagements. He um, did his first visit, state visit to China early early this year, a couple of weeks ago. Um, after that, he went to Davos um, and he's going to Japan, I think, in the next couple of weeks as well. So, so far, he's been, mm. he's been able to project to the international community that the Philippines is a responsible member of um, yeah. the community of states. Uh, hopefully, though, this this projection will be consistent throughout his administration and even beyond. That's fascinating. I I, I do want to talk about uh, his his visit to China, but but one uh, question before that: It sounds to me um, that within the context of his more friendlier stance uh, in terms of foreign policy, that within the context of U.S. China, um, he's trying to strike a balance. 
uh, between the two and the and within the context of you know the strategic competition that seems to intensifying. Um, is that the way you would describe what he's trying to do with regard to the U.S. and China? Is it is it strike a balance between the two and not appear to be leaning to one side or the other? Hedging is a good strategy for small or middle powers, you know, like the Philippines. Um, hedging would mean, as you said, striking a balance between the two great powers. And this is understandable because on one hand, we have a longstanding alliance with the United States. The U.S. has always been our security guarantor. Um, but on the other hand, we also very much depend on China in terms of the economic sphere, in terms of trade and, um, um, and those other matters. So in that sense, you know, we cannot, we cannot, um, favor one over the other. Um, it really has to be a balance, a hedging strategy between these two superpowers. Well, that's a very interesting. And and uh, you mentioned uh, that, that President Marcos Jr. did have an opportunity earlier this month uh, to visit Beijing. Um, understand he went with a 200-strong delegation, senior officials, business leaders also, um, he met with uh, President Xi Jinping on January 4th. Um, both leaders agreed to resume talks on oil and gas exploration in the South China Sea. They agreed to manage maritime differences amicably. Um, and the Philippines president secured over $20 billion in new investment pledges, along with 14 bilateral cooperation agreements. So on the surface, it looks to have been a successful visit. Um, from your standpoint, how important was the meeting? Um, and, you know, what interested to know what your kind of key takeaways were. And it, as I said, it appeared on the surface to be successful. Was it was it viewed that way from the from from your own perspective? All eyes were actually on this particular state visit because not only was this the very first state visit for the year, it was also his very first state visit to China. Um, and the major takeaway is, as you mentioned, you know, the focus is really on on economics. And um, this this meeting resulted in twenty two point eight billion dollars worth of investment pledges. There were a lot of bilateral agreements. Uh, um, as well, 14 of them, which focused on tourism, trade, information exchange, and many others. Now, um, on the surface, yes, I agree with you. These are actually, uh, this is actually a very successful visit because, because it's good to focus on these matters because they are solid foundations for jumpstarting the return of the economy to pre-pandemic levels. So it's good to see a president that's really taking care of matters to help the Philippines, you know, go back to what life used to be prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. But... Yeah. Um, this actually also seems like a reprisal of the script of Duterte. During Duterte's time, we've also seen a lot of investment pledges from, from China. And right. the inability of the Duterte administration to deliver on these pledges eventually became its downfall. 
I so see. unless these pledges um, under uh, the presidency of President Marcos, unless these translate to tangible infrastructure, the Marcos administration risks the same trajectory or the same plight as the Duterte presidency. Mm. It's very interesting. I, I remember I was in Beijing at the time and when President Duterte visited and um, again, uh, a lot of agreements, a lot of pledges from the Chinese in terms of uh, investment uh, and, you know, high uh, numbers of, you know, and, 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 and amounts of investment. But there was a question at the time, you know, whether or not these would actually come to fruition. And um, it sounds like, you know, that's been a point of criticism under the Duterte administration. And and as a result, it, it's, it's a bit of a risk uh, for, for President Marcos as well. You also mentioned, I noticed, uh, Charmaine, in a recent commentary you did for Think China, you talked about the fact that, you know, President Marcos was able to bring, you know, home some economic potential op economic opportunities. But it may have been a missed opportunity to leverage the arbitral or arbitration award from 2016. Um, talk a little more about that. What could have been done in your regard, um, and 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 what was not done during the meeting that could have been done. I'd love to talk about the arbitration because I think this is one, um, quote unquote, one weapon that the Philippines should use. And we haven't been using this to our advantage. Um, the state of the, um, the arbitration award six years after, after the tribunal, um, gave us this, this award is that, you know, my sense is that where we are now is better than yesterday but hopefully tomorrow will be better than today because the philippines really did miss its chance to to leverage the award as early as 2016 when it was handed down um, we missed this opportunity to bring together friends and partners to uphold the rules-based international order now, to be fair, like I said earlier, you know, Duterte's pivot to China did manage to lower tensions between the two countries. But sadly, this was at the expense of Philippine national interests. More could have been done. A better balancing act could have been done to, you know, leverage the award. Um, tell China that uh, what it was doing in the West Philippine Sea was wrong, but at the same time still managed to be friendly towards China in the economic sphere. Today, Marcos seems to be very strong in his statements. Um, in his State of the Nation address, for instance, right after he was um, right after he was pronounced president, he said that we will not give up an inch of Philippine territory and sovereignty. And ever since, he was always very strong, putting his foot down about you know we are going to protect our national interests. Um, and we don't want to engage in in conflict and we will do everything we can. So in this sense, you know, these very strong statements, very pro-Philippine statements, they're very good and very welcome. But then again, yeah. we've heard strong statements before. Um, Duterte was also known for giving a lot of these um, strong statements and putting his foot down. If you recall, um, early in the campaign trail of Duterte, he even promised to jet, to ride a jet ski to the contested waters okay. of the South China Sea, okay. and he would plant mm -hmm. the Philippine flag and, and so on. Right. And yet, 
despite all of those strong statements, look what happened during his administration. So mm. again, um, my take is, you know, while most Filipinos would welcome this very strong stance of President Marcos, let's wait and see whether or not these strong statements would actually bear fruit. And one way yeah. for it to, you know, be translated into benefits for the Philippines would be to leverage the arbitration award. Yeah. I noticed that um, in President Marcos's international engagements, he practically doesn't mention the arbitration award at all. Um, and this is something that I think he should mention again and again and again and not drop the ball because sweeping this under the rug will be tantamount to just forgetting that we have this yeah. this this you know this under our belt and that we can use it so that's one way yeah. i think that the philippines can leverage the award to make sure to mention it again and again in our international engagements the second well, yeah, sorry go, go ahead, ahead please uh, the, the second way I think in which we can leverage the award is to continue with the modernization of our armed forces. Um, however, this is we we are bogged down right now um, by what I what I call the the musical chairs dance currently happening within our Department of, of National Defense. Um, new appointments would mean shifting the the time and efforts of the department into filling a lot of these sub appointments rather than um, moving forward with our modernization efforts. Mm. Very important. And uh, your point about leveraging the arbitration award is really important. I noticed last week at the World Economic Forum, President Marcos, you know, talked about territorial disputes in the South China Sea, saying they keep them up at night. Um, and mm -hmm. There have been reports of PRC vessels in the vicinity of Iroquois Reef and Sabina Shoal and the Spratly Islands, um, unsafe encounters between the Chinese Coast Guard and the Philippine Naval Forces in the South China Sea. So it seems as though the activity in the South China Sea still remains to a certain extent, um, you know, quite, quite risky. I mean, how would you see this six years after the tribunal uh, ruling, the arbitration award, how would you describe the situation, you know, in the South China Sea and why why does Marcos Jr. say it keeps him up at night? Well, these incidents keep happening because we are not leveraging the arbitration mm -hmm. award. Um, we need to be um, we need to find partners and um, um, friends, partners, allies um, who would be uh, able to help us put our foot down and say, you know, we are protecting and upholding the rules-based international order, and this is, you know, what you're doing is not right. So we need to be able to find sufficient, a sufficient number, a good number of people um, on our side so that we can really leverage this. And like I said, you know, one way to do it is to mention it again and again. Because that yeah. would that would result in it being, um, you know, a fact in international relations. The second would be to focus on our modernization efforts. And then the third is to um, explore the nitty gritty of mm -hmm. this 
um, of these proposals on joint explorations of the South China Sea, West Philippine Sea. This is going to be very tricky because we have some constitutional constraints about the, the extent of joint explorations. But mm. for as long as these joint explorations are transparent and abide by our constitution and the 2016 award, um, it would be possible to move forward with it. Well, we talked about, you know, President Marcos, uh, his visit to China and his engagement with President Xi Jinping. Just prior to that, and at the end of 2022, Vice U.S. Vice President Kamala Harris had a chance to visit the Philippines. I want to talk a little bit about U.S.-Philippines relationship. During her trip, she uh, reaffirmed the U.S. unwavering commitment to its ally, the Philippines. Of course, the Philippines is an ally of the United States and discussed uh, 21 new projects funded by the U.S., more defense bases in the Philippines, among other things. Um, and you mentioned, of course, that at the end of the Duterte administration, there was a kind of a shift back towards uh, readjustment, uh, getting the U.S. relationship in a better place. And part of that was the Duterte administration recommitting to the Visiting Forces Agreement which allow us, allows U.S. forces to operate in the Philippines. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, that recommitment by President Duterte. I think you've, you've talked about the broader context that that decision was made in. But, how, you know, what's your general expectation for the future of U.S.-Philippines relations and, and, our, and the alliance uh, between the two countries going forward? Sure. Well, for a while back then during the Duterte administration, you know, analysts, scholars and just watchers of the alliance were sweating because it looks like the alliance is going to be uh, destroyed right before our very eyes. But um, by by the middle of 2021, um, after um, Austin's visit to to Manila, actually, the alliance was back on track. So there were there were no more questions about abrogating the visiting forces agreement. Everything was back back on track. Um, so this this is actually a good thing for for the Philippines because um, the alliance is beneficial, mutually beneficial to both the United States and the Philippines. Um, we hold our annual military joint military exercises, the Balikatan exercises. This is good for confidence building, capacity building, and and so on. Um, on the table very recently would be joint maritime patrols in the West. Philippine Sea. And again, this is something that is seen in a positive light from both sides of the alliance. So in this sense, you know, it's it's good that the alliance is back on track. Um, it was um, it was unfortunate that it was on rocky ground during the Duterte administration, um, but the fact that it is back on track is largely you know a result of the pandemic, largely a result of the um, inability of the um, investment pledges from China to bear fruit during the Duterte administration. So by the end of his term, President Duterte um, thought that you know maybe it's 
it's not the best way to end my term by mm-hmm. um, completely turning the country's back um, on the United States. So, you know, by August 2021, he decided to move the alliance back on track. And so everything is now back on schedule. We are working towards, um, you know, translating the EDCA, the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, into more tangible um, results. So, you know, everything is on the table. Um, It's all good. Um, So, yeah, hopefully this will continue. This will be consistent and this will be sustained because this alliance is very important for the Philippines in particular because it buys us some time to continue Mm -hmm. with, uh, with the modernization of our armed forces. Terrific. Well, um, I also want to discuss with you some of the recent U.S.-China tensions, the dynamics between U.S. and China in the region, and your perspective on the implications for the Philippines. We had we saw, of course, in August um, where tensions really intensified between the U.S. and China over the U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Uh, following her visit, there, of course, was an unprecedented large-scale uh, joint force set of military drills conducted by the People's Liberation Army. Uh, interesting, I know that you know they launched uh, a range of ballistic missiles. Uh, some landed in Japan's EEZ. But I know one of the military exclusion zones that China set up uh, during that time was just about 10 nautical miles from the Philippine territorial water. So getting getting close to the Philippines there. Um, President Marcos made headlines at the time, it was interesting, by telling uh, Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken that Pelosi's Taiwan trip did not raise the intention, intensity of U.S.-China uh, tensions. Interesting comment. I'm interested in your perspectives on that. But it just in general, I mean, how did the Philippines government, in your sense, you know, view the uptick in U.S.-China tensions over Taiwan and the the potential impact on the interests and security of the Philippines itself. I heard about that comment as well about, you know, the the Pelosi's Taiwan trip not raising the intensity of U.S.-China relations. I think uh, that statement of the president betrays the lack of strategic conversations um, in the Philippines about Taiwan. As you said, you know, geographically speaking, the Philippines is so close to Taiwan and we should actually be worried. This is what should be keeping us awake at night. But unfortunately, (laughs) these strategic you know conversations these discussions are not really happening in in the philippines mm-hmm. um and this is worrying you know the lack of of discussions about this is worrying because in case of a taiwan crisis some of the questions for the philippines would be number one what do we do with the filipinos in taiwan how do we get them back home? Yeah. And at the same mm-hmm. time, another question for the Philippines is, how do we deal with the influx of Taiwanese refugees? Because we're the first mm-hmm. country that they would probably come to because we're the nearest, the closest to, to Taiwan. And um, on top of that, you know, are we, is the Philippines, even prepared to host a government in exile, if ever? Right. Wow. So sadly, yeah. you know, the Philippines and Southeast Asia, I would even hazard a guess, seem to be ambivalent and even in denial that something like this could happen. 
right? Mm. Now, this is understandable, I think, because at the end of the day, this is still largely between the United States and China. This is, you know, tensions between the two great powers. And a lot of us feel like, you know, there is hope that maybe they would settle things between them and not involve the entire region. But I think these conversations need to to take place, especially also Mm. at the regional level, at the ASEAN level. Um, There is merit to boost the capacity of ASEAN to handle softer security issues. ASEAN cannot in any way prevent um, a full-on, you know, direct conflict between the two great powers, but it can definitely be the platform and the leader and initiate um, efforts towards handling softer security issues like um, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. So in that sense, I think um, there should be coordinated regional effort to look at these softer security issues in the context of uh, brewing um, conflict or tension in the Taiwan Strait. Those are some really important points, and you raise some really serious potential implications and and considerations of increasing tension um, uh, with regard to the Taiwan issue, and it's particularly relevant as uh, reports suggest, and I'm pretty certain it'll happen, that the new U.S. Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, will visit Taiwan at some point uh, in the spring. So we can, I think, expect to see tensions intensify uh, again uh, uh, when that happens. Um, The last point I was going to make is, you know, President Biden and President Xi did have an opportunity to meet um, in November. Um, not far from you, Charmaine, in in, in Bali, Indonesia. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, by all accounts, it was a constructive meeting and it helped to kind of cool down the relationship, uh, especially after, you know, the visit uh, to Taiwan by Speaker Pelosi, uh, which was, uh, you know, quite a, a tense time period between the U.S. and China. Um, and now the Secretary of State, uh, Anthony Blinken will be visiting China for his first time as Secretary of State, not not the first time he's visited China, but first time as Secretary of State um, in early February. Um, And uh, I think, and there's been a number of other high-level U.S.-China engagements since President Biden and President Xi met in Bali, I think, which, you know, I certainly see as, you know, positive and and constructive and important. I'm wondering from your standpoint, how are these developments uh, viewed, you know, from the Philippines? Are these seen as as helpful, providing a a, a more stable environment for the region? And, you know, how how would you expect um, these kind of engagements, uh, you know, what kind of impact would that have on, on the region and the Philippines? Well, at the at the heart of um of at the heart of strong international relations would really be, you know, efforts like this between countries. So the high-level visits of the United States to China, these are indicators of confidence-building measures. And I think these are very fundamental to ensuring that um, they have good communications with each other, that they can move forward together, that they understand each other, that they're on the same page. And I would even hazard a guess that this is precisely what President 
President Marcos is also doing to project to the international community that con in contrast to the last six years under the previous president, the Philippines is a responsible member of the international community. It can be trusted. It is a credible member. And so I think this is part and parcel of diplomacy, of just, you know, your regular um, interactions in the international arena. This is one way for states to showcase that um, they are willing to talk things out, to discuss matters um, in 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 a diplomatic in as diplomatic way as possible, and to ensure that we can meet outcomes, common outcomes that would be beneficial for all parties. Well, I really thank you for. Uh, really important uh, insights today. Um, you've helped us gain insight into the Philippines' shifting foreign policy, its relations with China and the U.S., extremely informative and thought-provoking, and I, I really appreciate you joining the China in the World podcast and hope to be able to have you back on the program at some point in the future. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegieendowment.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur with assistance from Wang Yuen Hong, Michael Malinconi, and Sama Kuba. The music was composed by Spencer Barnett.